Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm happy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Judy Bibelar. Judy loved teachings in San Francisco's public high schools for 37 years. There, she nurtured young poets and writers in her classes, many of them winning writing prizes, including eight on the national level. As a co-founder of Opportunity One and Two, which were public alternative schools, never could she or really any of the educators there have imagined that literally dozens of their students would die in the tragedy of Jonestown under the twisted spell of Jim Jones of the People's Temple. And then they were gone, teenagers of People's Temple from high school to Jonestown, is about the Temple students that she and Ron Cabral came to know at Opportunity 2 in 1976. In it, she tells the stories of young people sharing their poetry and the stories of who they were commemorating their tragically too short lives. The book has won 10 honors and awards, including four first prizes, the most recent from Chanticleer, the Nellie Bly Award for Journalistic Writing. Judy's award-winning poetry has been published widely in magazines and anthologies and in a chapbook, Walking Across the Pacific. She currently serves as teacher consultant with UC Berkeley's Bay Area Writing Project. Judy Bibelar, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Betsy. This is very important to me. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I've spent some days in your pages and... I'm going to ask you what may seem like a simple question, but I, I know it's not. What brought you to write this book after so very many years? This has been, what, 42 years? Is that Did I do the math right? Yeah. Since 1978, when, when the Jonestown tragedy occurred. What, what prompted you to write this story? Well, it took us 30 years, Ron and I, to get started. And he was actually the person who came up with the idea after seeing a play at the Berkeley Repertory Theater called The People's Temple. Uh, And the official church title has no apostrophe, but the play has an apostrophe. Lee Fondakowski, who kind of arranged putting it together, um, wanting to show that the play was about the people of the temple Mm. their church, not Jones's church. Mm. And Ron called me up when he saw the play. I had tickets and saw it shortly after and and said, yes, we can do something like the play because the play 
really honored the people of the temple. And it was the first time it occurred to us that we could honor our students in that same way. So that's what this seems like. It seems like a memorial to them and less a story about Jim Jones. Right. Yes. He has to be part of it because he was of so course. important. But but we tried really hard to to make the real focus the kids. Well, you've certainly done it. And reading these pages, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where you know, of course, it's like watching the movie Titanic. You know, you know the boat is going to sink, <laughs> so it's not yeah. a surprise. But the story, of course, that was fiction as a film. But, uh, but in your story, as I as I read it, kind of backwards, right? Kind of knowing the ending and then getting to know these precious students. I try to imagine what it must have been like for you and your fellow educators and the other pa- other parents of other students at school. By, by the way, the opportunity was a public school, so you had regular kids there. Right, right. And then and then in what 1976 there was this influx of what you called temple kids. Right. Jim Jones decided to send almost all of the temple teenagers. And it was a very small public alternative school. There were only about 300 kids there. So when 80 to 120 temple kids came. It was a big change for the school. Oh, I bet. And at first we were upset about it because the principal had decided this on her own. Our usual protocol had been to take kids in one at a time because the school was designed for kids that were having problems, weren't attending school, um, problems at home, difficult family life. And the idea was we would give these kids a chance to graduate if they would buy into our plan and we could talk them into doing what we wanted them to do because they were going to have a great time while they were doing it. We tried to make all the classes really fun and interesting and interactive, lots of cooking and activity, kind of what we'd think of as a creative school or a, uh, even a homestead kind of school in a way, as I, as I was listening to it, not homestead in that it's remote, but that it was not just sort of sitting and reading books and doing traditional classwork. No, the wood shop was a very important part of the school and the cooking class that another teacher and I taught, we made an entire meal once a week and sat down to eat it and from different cultures and lots of field trips and going places and hands-on kind of learning. So you had 300 or so kids and then in came the 80 to 120, depending on what the season was, of the temple kids. That must have been quite a, a culture shift. Yes. And I want to make it clear too that there were other kids who had just chosen to come to the school who were you know, doing quite well where they were, even some of them at the college prep high school, Lowell in San Francisco. But the majority of the kids that were kids that were having some difficulty. Then when the Temple kids came in, they added so much to our classes. They were bright. They were there every day. They spoke up in class. They were enthusiastic about Ron's radio show and his journalism class, and my poetry class. You know, we decided, well, they want to be here and they're great. So, yes. <laughs> and of course, at that time, you had no, I, I'm assuming you had no real notion of 
them being in what we would now know as a cult or this kind of perversion of a church. Um, it was, it was just that they, they all happened to go to the same church in your mind. Is that right? Well, and the church was getting to be quite well known in San Francisco for its good works and its work with older people and animals and helping people get off drugs and taking in foster children and giving them what we believed at the time was a good home. Um, and Jones was in the newspaper as a civic leader and a great minister. And many of the other ministers in San Francisco, like the famous Cecil Williams, thought he was a great guy too. So it wasn't that we were opposed to them coming from the church. It was just that we wanted them to come in the way most of our students did, but then decided, well, that really wasn't necessary in this case. And they were great kids. and. They made a baseball team possible for Ron. He'd never been able to start one before, but the Temple kids were good athletes, and a lot of them loved baseball. Tim Jones, one of Jim Jones' adopted sons, could have been a professional pitcher. Ron had actually contacted the the coach at Cal, the baseball coach, and he was interested in having Tim go to school there. But, of course, that didn't happen like many of the other dreams of kids were squashed. Well, and, and that really that really seems to be the, the theme of the story is just all of these amazing, inspiring, touching young people. Their poetry and their stories is, is peppered throughout your, your book. And so it makes them that just that much more personal. It's not, you didn't write about them en masse. Right. <laughs> you, you helped us get to know them. So like you said, this was a, a minister of renown. There are photos of him with Jerry Brown and with Cecil Williams and with all kinds of those other folks, and he was getting lots of accolades. Mm-hmm. And it, it should not be ignored, of course, that there's a racial element to the Jim Jones story as well. Yes. Can, can you say a bit about that? Well, In the beginning, the church began in the 50s in Indianapolis, and Jones began the first interracial church in that place, which was, you know, a pretty segregated place at the time. Mm -hmm. And so those people joined for that reason, the black people and the white people, you know, believe that we can all work together and be good Christians together and help others. And and Jones, when he came to school, said that, yes, he was the white leader of a mostly black church, but that was because he thought he could take his black parishioners places where otherwise they wouldn't be able to go. So he had a very good cover story, if you will, for, you know, why the church was mostly black. And why do you think the church would... I kind of want to back up here for a second, because of course... On the surface, then, that made this look like something that good, you know, liberal-hearted, bleeding-heart folks could get behind and support. They were for integrating and racial equality and all of those things, or so it seemed, on the outside. Well, even on the inside, I mean, that was really a true part of it. And that's the first thing that we noticed about these kids. You know, other kids, it's described in the book, would have... You know, the Latino kids had their hangout place over here and the black kids gathered here and 
you know, and the hippies over there. And uh, but the kids from the temple, they just seemed absolutely unconscious of color. Hmm. And I remember especially two kids that were in my one of my classes. It was a reading class, and you had to read a book and then either write to the author or write an essay about the book or somehow show that you had really thought about this book and written about it. And um, Vance Smith was white from the temple, and Cornelius Truss was black. They always sat next to one another in class. They were obviously best buddies. And they said, hey, Miss B, can we write our report together? And they did. They they wrote it. I don't know if you remember the book, and then it was a movie um, called The K, about a young white boy who's rescued by um, it was a famous actor. Who was he? Uh, but a black man that lived on these islands where the ship they were on crashed and saved his life. But the boy had been blinded, and though he'd been brought up to be racist, he loved this man that he couldn't see the color of his skin. And uh, it's a really beautiful story. And they wrote to Theodore Taylor, the author, who has died since, but he wrote them a beautiful letter back. And it was really a lovely moment when we could read the letter. (laughs) So like so many of these cult organizations, it appeals to people because they're trying to do good in the world. It makes me think of uh, another guest on the Morning Glory Project, Sands Hall, who was part of Scientology, which she now regards as a cult. But they appealed to people's intentions to to be their best selves and to make the world a better place. And I've since been, I've been a little bit obsessed with the whole notion of cults recently after, after all of this. And so I've been watching and reading a lot about it. And it seems like so many of them are about appealing to people's best intentions and their goodness. Yes. More than I would have thought, I would have thought that most cults would be built around people's prejudices and fears and you know their rage and paranoia. But it seems like it appeals to the goodness of people first. Right. And as Stephen Jones, um, who Jim Jones' only biological son, who was a huge help with the book and said, yes, of course I could use his writing, all of which can be found on a wonderful website, Uh, which is from San Diego State University, called Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple. It's just a a wealth of of information, academic papers, personal reflections, pictures of those who died in Jonestown and a little about their lives. But Stephen has a lot of writing. He's never seemed to want to, I think he doesn't want to in any way make money or off of his writing about Jonestown. So he just puts it up on the website. Well, one can imagine he's the survi- a surviving son of Jim Jones. I would imagine he wouldn't want to profit from all that happened. Yes. Which says something pretty lovely about him. <laughs> he, he is a lovely person um, and a good father to his three girls and, um, his writing is very vivid, very wonderful. Uh, I think it's one of the best parts of the book. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it, I found myself really reading his pieces uh, thoroughly too. And he is a survivor of this. In other words, uh, he didn't die in Jonestown, obviously, thank heaven. Um, 
And that's kind of one of the strange ironies of the story is which kids didn't end up. So at some point they left your school and went to Guyana. Well, um, they, they came in different batches, uh, at, at first, Jones took, Stephen was the first of the kids at the school that he took. And that was most probably because it seemed that Stephen might be about to defect, as many other young people and older people had already defected because they began to see what was wrong with the church. Well, and as Jim Jones was disintegrating, too, into his addictive self and his mental illness, obviously. Yes. But that, that happened more extremely once they got to Jonestown. Mm. Um, but Stephen and two of his adopted brothers and a couple of other of our students were taken in the spring. Then that summer of 1977 is when the new West magazine expose came out about what was going on behind closed doors. And that led to a huge exodus over that summer, uh, mostly a secret exodus. Um, he would send people off in the temple Greyhound buses. He had used Greyhound buses uh, across the country to Florida so people wouldn't realize how many people from the temple were leaving. Hmm. And so we came back to school in September to very few of the temple kids left. So much of this book is a love story and a commemoration of the lives of these students. But I'm also thinking about you and your fellow educators and what it must have been like on November 19th, the day after the Jonestown massacre, what it must have been like for you to how did you then realize how many of your the students that you had known were gone? Well, at first we didn't know. The first report said that 400 had died there and nobody knew exactly how many people were there um, anyway. And so we thought, well, hopefully our, our students didn't die. But then with each day, it wasn't until a month later in December that the list of names came out in the chronicle of people who had died, and that wasn't even a complete list then. Um, and But so many of our students' names were on that list. I still have that old yellow newspaper. And, and how, many, how many names did you and your colleagues recognize? Well, there, there were probably 30 or 40 names that we recognized, um, but when we started to write the book three decades later, by that time the Jonestown website was up and we could look on that and Ron and I thought we recognized about 80 of the names that oh my. Um, it's called the Who Died list. And those are actually the photos on the cover of the book. They look kind of like a high school yearbook, but actually they're the passport photos of the kids. And the passports had been confiscated from them before they went across the Atlantic to Jonestown. So they wouldn't be, wouldn't leave. Yes. They <laughs> Part were. of their captivity. 
Right. And that's one, we were talking about cults before, and that's one of the big differences, I think, with Jonestown, is that he lured the people to Jonestown with the idea, and this especially appealed to the young people, that they were going to be able to create a model society without racism, ageism, or sexism. They were going to raise their own food. They were going to live in this tropical paradise and show the world, you know, how to do it. But, of course, when they got there, the first thing that happened, passport taken away. And then, as you said, Jones was going deeper and deeper into his paranoia and madness and addiction. They were allowed nothing. The people in the, and even smoking a cigarette could get you in big trouble. But of course, Jones had whatever drugs he wanted. And uh, mistresses. And, and alcohol and mistresses, <laughs> yes. As, as seems to be common among the, the, the gurus of cults, it seems. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I mean, I've been a teacher. I know lots of teachers. I have them in my, in my life and I treasure them. And the, the grief had to unfold in a weird way for you. I mean, every teacher goes, every good teacher goes into teaching because she loves students and she loves kids and wants to nurture them to adulthood and to have so many of them snatched away must have been a heartbreak. It was, it was, it was incomprehensible. Um, and, you know, this is the first time I've ever confessed this, but I can't remember the exact moment when I heard about the deaths. It was such a big blow that I, I don't know where I was. I don't know how I heard it. Hmm. Although most people in the whole Bay Area, you know, could tell you exactly where they were when they heard it and whether they heard it on the radio or they saw it on TV. Um, but it was just an enormous shock, a weight. And, um, and it's been such a wonderful surprise that the writing of the book has given me so much. I mean, I feel very humble because of that. It's, it's, it's such a wonderful feeling to know that the kids are remembered and people are getting to know them and their poetry, and their stories, um, they're not forgotten or just considered to be strange zombie-like people that followed this cult leader. Um, people just don't know how many were kids. A third of the people in Jonestown were under 18. A half of them were in their 20s. And there were, what, 900-plus that that passed 918 yes 918 plus of course there was the shooting at the on the airport at the uh, on the the tarmac right yeah that was in, out, just outside of Jonestown uh, and they were about to leave and it was one of our students by the way that started the real rush towards people wanting to leave because they had been afraid to say anything because even to say it would be nice to go home. I'd like to go home. Could get you in big trouble in Jonestown. Mm. So, of course, signing up with Jackie Spears, with the congressman there, uh, you know, that would, by Jones, be considered a huge betrayal. But the people were at the tarmac waiting for the plane. 
they needed to send another plane because so many people had signed up to leave when the the shooting happened. And so, so for for listeners who are unfamiliar with the story, basically, a Congressman it was Congressman Ryan, right? Leo Ryan, yeah. Leo Ryan came down. Jackie Spears, who is currently a congresswoman and has served for many, many years since, was was an aide of his. She was not yet a member of Congress, mm-hmm. and they were there to try to take some take kids out that wanted to get out. And then the shooting ensued, and Congressman Ryan was killed. Jack, Jackie Spears was wounded. There were other people taken as well. Such a such a tragedy. Well, you you've in a way answered part of the question I was going to ask you next, which is how do you get through that kind of grief? How do you settle that? It, it sounds like the writing of their stories was an important part of that process for you. Yes. And, um, and I think the writing of stories, especially tragedies and songs that are, well, Buddy Guy put it this way. He said, you know, the famous blues musician, and he mm-hmm. said, he said that funny thing about the blues, you sing them because you got them, but when you sing them, you lose them. Hmm. And we are so drawn to stories like the Titanic and Romeo and Juliet, and sad songs are among our most beautiful songs. And I think it's a way, the explanation is that it's a connection for human beings. All of us have tragedy to some degree in our lives. And it's a, it can be a powerful connecting force when, instead of for trying to forget about the tragedy or push the grief aside, you enter into it. And in my case, I made so many wonderful discoveries along the way writing the book, even though, yes, sometimes it was really hard to make myself sit down and write. And it, it was partly those pictures that I had up and we had the cover of the book long before the book was published and and those faces kept me going you know yeah that's why I'm doing this for them well you're validating something that I've always believed Judy and that is that storytelling is a healing process whether it's in song or dance or paint or written word yes. or spoken word of any kind it sounds like that that was a a healing and transformative process for you. And what you've created here is such a a beautiful memorial so that you, as well as others who have, have immortalized these young people have made them more than just an anonymous number. You've let their stories live on. It's, it's a touching and moving experience and written in a, as a journalist, in a way, it's a detective novel, how you found things out and researched them, whom you spoke to and how you gathered the information. It's it's fascinating and terrible. And if you were going to say what lessons can be learned from Jonestown, do you, do you have any notion of, of what's to be learned by understanding this more? Well, I think... The first lesson is to do what Herb Cole, who wrote the beautiful foreword to the book, um, the author and educator, said is to not neglect stories like that, uh, stories of tragedy, but to try to do something to remember the people. And 
to do something with your grief. Uh, it makes me think of the students at Marjorie Stone Douglas School um, who, you know, started a huge movement against gun violence and they took their grief and did something positive with it. And many people besides me have written about this. I know of two survivors who have books nearly completed now that are going to be beautiful books. Uh, Johnny Cobb, one of our students, and Eugene Smith, the father of one of our, the husband of one of our students, um, and Jordan, um, who is in the process of writing what's going to be a really wonderful book too. So there's, there's going to be, it's still producing um, books which help people realize the humanity of those people who died, how connected we are and how important it is to not take the easy way out and say, Oh, I would never do anything like that. Uh, you know, they, there must've been something wrong with those people, but they were wonderful human beings. And as a matter of fact, kind of as in Romeo and Juliet at the end, when you're hoping that the, it will turn out all right, but you kind of know that it's not going to, um, the basketball team that Steven started, which included some of the people from the baseball team at Opportunity High, had gone off to play a tournament. They were so good, and somebody came to visit and saw them doing this American-style playground um, basketball and said, hey, would, would they like to play with the um, Guyanese national team? And they talked. Jim Jones into it. It'll be great PR for the church. And they went off. And that's where they were. And that's why Stephen lives today. Right. And this is what Stephen said about what happened when the basketball team was there together. And they were one by one, they had turned against Jones. And when they were away, they were free to speak and talk to one another and be themselves completely. And Stephen says this, we were getting exhausted. Dad had pushed us all to the edge one too many times. It was time to stop playing the waiting game, waiting for the right reason, the right moment to rise against him, waiting for his key supporters to see the light, waiting for him to get too sick, too strung out to lead, waiting for him to die, which it seemed he was about to. We had to do something about Dad and his leadership circle. Soon we would retrace our three-day journey across hellish ocean, heavenly river, and dusty, tortured road. I told myself that when my new allies and I got back to Jonestown, my father's days were numbered. Mm. So they did fight back and show spirit and do things they weren't supposed to do out of love or friendship for other people in Jonestown. And that's an important part of the story. Chapter 12 is called Precious Acts of Treason because that's what it's all about, all the ways big and small that people fought back. And and they almost did, you know, and that makes it even more of a tragedy, I believe. Well, Judy, uh, it's it's beautiful that you've 
commemorated these lives lost, uh, particularly with focused on the young people that frankly, before meeting you and, and knowing of this story, I never knew that there were this many young people that passed in that tragedy and you've kept them alive through their stories. And I'm grateful to you for that. Thank you so much. And for those interested, the book again is, and then they were gone teenagers of people's temple from high school to Jonestown by Judy Bibelar and Ron Cabral. Judy, thank you so much for being part of the morning boy project. I'm so happy to have you here. And I'm, I'm extra thrilled that storytelling was a healing process for you and for, I hope, your fellow educators as well. Thank you so much, Betsy. This has been wonderful to talk to you. I thought about my conversation with Judy Bivalar a lot in the last few days since I had that conversation with her. And a few things popped to mind as extra blooms. One is that a theme that comes up a lot in this podcast about how people get through things is by writing. Whether you're a writer or not, or intend to publish anything ever, there's something reparative about writing a story. It sort of takes it, for me anyway, out of my head and onto the page. (laughs) And I've found that to be a wonderful solace. I know it isn't for everybody and for other people, they find other art forms or other endeavors, but I don't want that one to be missed because again, whether or not you ever plan on showing a word to another person or publishing anything, the writing process itself can be a healing one. But the other thing that comes to mind after the conversation with Judy is that in her book, what she's doing is she's memorializing those lost rather than doing a long book about the person who caused their death. Of course, Jim Jones has to be mentioned in her book, of course, that he was the cause, the catalyst for it all. But I'm thinking about all of my friends who are gun violence survivors and how hard they've worked to have networks give no notoriety to those who would take their lives with guns, and rather to celebrate the lives of those taken. So I'm so pleased that Judy spent time memorializing the young people taken in Jonestown, the young people whose lives were cut so short. It would be 42 years ago. Those young people would be in their 50s and 60s now, well, 60s and late 60s, right, if I do my math right, they'd have had lives and careers and families and friends and vacations, and they'd have created businesses and music and art. They'd have laughed and they'd have cried, and it's right that they be remembered. So in our grief, it sometimes is painful to think of those we've lost But it's more painful, I think, to forget them. That's the extra balloon I'm going to hold on to today. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. I'm pleased that you spent this time with us today, and I hope that wherever you are, that you are finding your own way to bloom. Bloom.